Welcome to the National Disability Services Quality and Safeguards podcast series. This series has been developed to support Victorians to transition to the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission, which will take effect in Victoria from the 1st of July 2019. I'm Fiona Still, NDIS Sector Transition Manager with National Disability Services. And in this episode, we'll be discussing some of the transitional arrangements which Victorian service providers should be aware of in relation to behaviour support and restrictive practices. Existing quality and safeguarding arrangements will continue to apply for Victorians in receipt of state funding and for people who have not transitioned to the NDIS by the 1st of July. I'm joined here today by our studio guest, Dave Ralph, Victorian Quality and Safeguards Manager with National Disability Services. Welcome, Dave. Thanks, Fiona. So, Dave, in Victoria, we have been used to a system of authorisation of the use of restrictive practices, the lodging of behaviour support plans. Can you talk about what will be different under the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission? Yes, certainly. So, under the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission, providers will need to be lodging behaviour support plans with the Commission after the 1st of July 2019. So that's any new behaviour support plans that are written after the 1st of July 2019. They'll need to be lodged with the NDIS Commission. At the moment, that lodging occurs via an email address. However, the Commission is working on that being a system via their portal, and there'll be updates regarding that coming soon. With regards to the way in which we've been doing things in in Victoria via the RIDS system, RIDS will remain. However, this will be for the authorisation process of restrictive practices. So that element of of authorisation will remain the same, if not very similar, in Victoria. However, after the 1st of July 2019, for NDIS participants, the reporting of restrictive practices will need to go to the NDIS Commission. So, to be clear, if I... the Behaviour support plan after the 1st of July for an NDS participant will be lodged with the NDS Commission, but the authorisation to use a restrictive practice remains with the Victorian Government through the Office of the Senior Practitioner. Yeah, that's correct. So we've had authorised program offices in each organisation and that will continue to occur and will continue to be a requirement under the Disability Act. Uh, authorised program officers will need to have a good understanding of the people who are using the services and the people within their organisation who have behaviour support plans and who are subject to restrictive practices. And authorised program officers will need to have a good understanding of what that principle of least restrictive practice really is. So I encourage people within organisations who are authorised program officers to really uh, draw on the supports from the Office of the Senior Practitioner to upskill in relation to understanding restrictive practices because it will be them who is approving those plans and then ensuring that those plans are lodged with the Office of the Senior Practitioner. Will any of the use of restrictive practices, so the type of restrictive practices that might be used, will any of that reporting change with the move to the Commission? Yeah, certainly. So we have been very used in Victoria to uh, reporting on physical restraint and in behaviour support plans, we've always been reporting on chemical restraint, mechanical restraint, and seclusion. We have also had in behaviour support plans in Victoria environmental restraints listed, but we haven't had to be reporting on those on a monthly basis via RIDS. Going forward, after the 1st of July, environmental restraints will also need to be reported to the NDIS Commission along with those other restrictions also. And that's a big change for Victorian providers and for people who use services. 
What sort of things would people be reporting as an environmental restraint? What kind of things would they now need to be reporting? Yeah, so an environmental restraint could be things such as a locked door at a service where the person being supported isn't able to leave if they choose to. It could be a locked cupboard or a locked fridge where the person isn't able to access food or belongings when they would like to. It could be a locked gate and it could be locked access to their own personal belongings, for example. So there's a whole range of things which may be considered an environmental restraint. But sometimes those environmental restraints are things that you may not have thought of. For example, cups on a shelf that may be too high for someone to reach. So we really need to be having a close look at the services that we're providing and thinking about what may constitute an environmental restraint because now's the time to start thinking about is that the least restrictive practice for that person because going forward we will need to be reporting that on a monthly basis and demonstrating that we're reducing those environmental restraints over time. So one of the things you've said, Dave, is that people will still need to get the authorisation for their restrictive practices through the Office of the Senior Practitioner. Um, Does that mean that RIDS will continue to exist in some format? Yes. So we have had confirmation from the Department of Health and Human Services that RIDS will continue to exist after the 1st of July 2019. It will do so for two reasons. RIDS will need to continue in Victoria for people who have not yet transitioned to the NDIS Commission and who have not yet transitioned to the NDIS, I should say, on the 1st of July 2019. So normal processes will continue to occur for people who are not yet NDIS participants, and RIDS reporting will need to occur as per usual. For people who have transitioned to the NDIS after the 1st of July, or by by the 1st of July 2019, RIDS will continue to exist for those people, but in a slightly different format. So the authorisation process will continue, However, the reporting of those restrictive practices will not need to be done via RIDS for those people who have transitioned to the NDIS. So if I'm working with an NDIS participant and I've got a behaviour support plan that I've lodged through RIDS, on the 1st of July, what will I need to do? Will I have to lodge that with the Commission? No. So existing behaviour support plans that are currently in place will continue until the plan expired or until it requires a review. So that plan will be considered authorised in Victoria until it expires or until a review is required. The department is currently working with the NDIS Commission to transition existing behaviour support plans over to the Commission to enable the reporting processes to occur to the NDIS Commission on existing behaviour support plans post-transition. So in terms of what service providers need to be doing with existing behaviour support plans, at this point nothing. If a new behaviour support plan needs to be written after the 1st of July or if a current behaviour support plan needs to be reviewed, that behaviour support plan will need to be lodged with the NDIS Commission. But for existing ones, you don't need to do anything. They'll automatically be transferred. That's correct. So one of the things that we've been hearing a little bit about is that under the new National Quality and Safeguarding Commission, there is a new capability framework that's been developed for people who are developing positive behaviour support plans. Has there been any new information released about that development of that framework? Yeah, there has actually. The NDIS Commission has recently shared some details about the positive behaviour support capability framework. It's not expected to be released until the end of June. But you may remember, and others may remember also, last year there was a positive behaviour support competency framework which was released uh, and then taken down so it could be reviewed. And 
the name change is really suggestive there in that we're not looking at a person's competencies or qualifications. The focus is changing. We're now looking at the person's capabilities. So the framework will be used to assess the suitability of behaviour support practitioners who are registered as sole traders of specialist behaviour support or who are engaged by registered providers of specialist behaviour support. It has been developed through extensive consultation with stakeholders with relevant subject matter expertise, with people with a lived experience of cognitive disabilities, with service providers and with peak bodies. And it's based on contemporary evidence-based practice and draws on national and international expertise. So the information that we have so far around what this positive behaviour support capability framework entails is that there are four practitioner levels. A behaviour support practitioner could be a core practitioner, a proficient practitioner, an advanced practitioner, or a specialist practitioner. And the framework then outlines knowledge and skills for core practitioners, and then knowledge and skills for those who are a proficient or above. So how do I decide, or who decides, whether I meet um, one of those four practitioner levels? So it's going to be a self-assessment process, which will be verified by the NDIS Commission. So the framework outlines knowledge and skills for core practitioners and those who are proficient or above in all of those capability domains, and that'll be a process of self-assessment against those skills and knowledge areas. That will then be verified by the NDIS Commission, who will ultimately determine whether a behaviour support practitioner is deemed suitable for practice. Dave, what will this mean for existing registered behaviour support practitioners and providers? This revised framework establishes expectations for good practice behaviour support for participants and assists practitioners to move towards a higher standard of practice. So one of the great things about this new positive behaviour support capability framework is that it enables practitioners who may have a passion or an interest in providing positive behaviour support or in reducing and eliminating restrictive practices to become a core practitioner. They may not necessarily need a qualification because there are no qualifications outlined within the framework itself. As I mentioned earlier, the framework focuses on skills and knowledge and capabilities. It doesn't focus on specific qualifications. So, for example, if someone is a service manager who has been writing behaviour support plans for many years, has a good understanding of positive behaviour support, and a, a quite a bit of training has gone in to support that person to have a good understanding, that person could be deemed a core practitioner and meet the skills and knowledge expected of a core practitioner. Now, one thing to note about a core practitioner is they aren't able to write plans or make recommendations with regards to restrictive practices. That will need to be done by a proficient practitioner or above. The other thing is that the framework heavily focuses on supervision and professional development. So, for example, a core practitioner will need to be supervised by a proficient practitioner or above in the same way that a proficient practitioner will need to be supervised by someone who is an advanced practitioner or a specialist practitioner. For people who are advanced or specialist practitioners, they will be able to engage in peer support or external support from their organisation. However, it's that practice of supervision which is really helpful in supporting people to move through um, their career pathway and move from one practitioner level to the next. So the whole premise of the framework is to outline expectations for best practice and for good practice and to support people on a pathway towards excellence. So you said earlier, and I just didn't pick it up, when can we expect to see that capability framework released? 
At this stage, the Commission is saying that the PBS capability framework will be released at the end of June or towards the end of June 2019. We've also been advised that the Commission is currently in the final stages of preparing a resource kit which will support providers to understand the self-assessment process against the positive behaviour support capability framework. And then, in an ongoing capacity, the senior practitioner, Geoffrey Chan, and his team will continue to develop resources and resource toolkits which will collate resources from evidence-based practice around the world to ensure that people are providing best practice support. So one of the things that this element of the Quality and Safeguards Commission's work and looking at positive behaviour support and the um, reporting of restrictive practice is underpinned by the national framework for eliminating and reducing restrictive practice. So I'm imagining that's the thinking behind the development of the capability framework and these resources. It is part of the Commission's charter to help reduce and eliminate and for people to understand, as you said, what's contemporary good practice within this sphere of work. Dave, thanks for giving us that overview of some of the changes that are happening with both the lodgement of behaviour support plans and with the reporting of restrictive practices and the development of that positive behaviour support capability framework that will guide the Commission's work. Can you tell us about how providers can prepare for these changes? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the key things that providers need to be focusing on at this point is around environmental restraints. It is one of the more significant changes as we move to reporting with the NDIS Commission, and it's something that historically hasn't been done well in many disability services. So I really encourage service providers and staff to start thinking about the environmental restraints that may be in place at services and thinking about why they're in place, who they're in place for, and how you're supporting the reduction of those environmental restraints. So a way to do that might be to ask a staff member at each and every service to record every single environmental restraint that is in place at that service. Record who is it in place for, record who else may be affected by that environmental restraint being in place, and then record what strategies and processes are in place currently to reduce that restrictive practices. By undergoing a process such as that, it'll put you in really good stead when we move past the 1st of July and you'll need to be reporting on those restraints on a monthly basis. It's also important that staff are made aware of the changes that are occurring. So another big change that's occurring is around incident reporting with regards to the unauthorised use of restrictive practices. This will be a reportable incident to the NDIS Commission. So for example, in Victoria, under the RIDS program, Victorian providers will have been very used to reporting an emergency restraint if, for example, a restrictive practice has been applied which is not in a behaviour support plan. The other thing is that providers should ensure that their staff are aware of the changes that are occurring. So that might be around some of the changes that I've just spoken of regarding environmental restraints and the reporting of them. But it also might be in relation to the use of unauthorised restrictive practices that may not be in a behaviour support plan. Going forward, after the 1st of July 2019, unauthorised restrictive practices will need to be reported as an incident, a reportable incident, to the NDIS Commission. So that might include, for example, if medication is prescribed by a doctor and is administered before it is approved in a behaviour support plan, each time that medication is administered, it will need to be an incident report to the NDIS Commission. 
we'll no longer have an emergency reporting system as we have had via the RID system in Victoria. And that's a key change which providers need to be aware of. So that administration of that medication would need to be reported every time as an incident until the behaviour support plan has been updated. Yeah, that's correct. So this is another reason why the positive behaviour support capability framework will be really valuable in addressing the shortage of behaviour support practitioners across the disability sector, because there will need to be situations where an interim behaviour support plan is required to be written in a very short time frame to enable uh, any medications, for example, to be included in a person's behaviour support plan as quickly as possible. And until they are, yes, an incident report will, will need to be completed each time that medication is administered. The other thing that providers can be doing is ensuring that they're supporting the people who use their services and their families and decision makers to understand the NDIS Commission's behaviour support function. When providers are supporting their staff to be aware of restrictive practices and what a restrictive practice may be, National Disability Services has some fantastic resources called the Recognising Restrictive Practices Films. These are seven pairs of films which were developed in consultation and collaboration with the Office of the Senior Practitioner and a whole range of people across the disability sector. They're a great resource which really focus on the impact of restrictive practices on the people that we support and the misuse of restrictive practices because often staff might be using a restrictive practice and not even be aware that they're doing so. Where can people find those films, Dave? Those films are available on the National Disability Services Zero Tolerance webpage, and we'll include those in the podcast summary. Thanks, Dave, for telling us today about the different changes that will be in place for the lodgement of behaviour support plans, the reporting of restrictive practices for NDIS participants from the 1st of July in Victoria. Where else can people find out information about these changes? The best place for people to go to for the most current and up-to-date information regarding behaviour support and restrictive practices under the NDIS Commission is the NDIS Commission's website, and we'll include the hyperlink to that website in this podcast summary. As time goes by, there's more and more resources that are being added to this website to support providers and practitioners and people who use services to understand the changes that are occurring. The Department of Health and Human Services have also advised that they'll be providing further information for providers regarding this process when available, and National Disability Services will continue to update via our regular news updates around any changes that are coming to light with regards to transition processes. For more information, have a look at the Quality and Safeguards page on our National Disability Services website. Keep your eye on the NDIS Commission's website for up-to-date information about quality and safeguarding arrangements and a range of resources to support providers and NDIS participants. Further information about Victoria's quality and safeguards arrangements during transition can be found on the Victorian Government's NDIS website. We've provided hyperlinks to these websites in the podcast summary, along with some useful resources. This podcast has been funded by the Victorian Government.